we're really, really sort of lucky um, to be able to have one of the experts here, Dr. Perlman. Thank you, Dr. Perlman, for joining our show. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So Dr. Perlman um, is the Director of Clinical Neurogenetics Program um, and the Ataxia Clinic at UCLA since 1986 um, and, con- and, and has a, a variety of clinical interests um, in inherited ataxias. When she did her fellowship, she did research in the biochemistry of Friedrich's ataxias. This was before we even knew what the genetic cause was. Um, she's a member of the Collaborative Clinic Research Network for Friedrich's ataxia, um, the Cooperative Ataxia Network, as well as the Huntington Study Group, and as well as national organizations are engaged in furthering clinical research for the treatment of neurogenetic disorders. She has received numerous awards, and I think the most telling thing is I've actually were able to meet some people in the ataxia community just recently, and when they heard that Dr. Perlman was going to be on the show, they were ecstatic, and she comes really, really highly recommended, and we're really privileged to have you on the show. Thank you. So, Dr. Perlman, ataxia seems to be a really broad topic. Can you tell us what, what is ataxia for those who don't know? Ataxia is technically classified as problems with balance or coordination that relate to the cerebellum, which is a part of the brain that controls balance and coordination, Ataxia can also be caused by changes in connections to the cerebellum, which would include connections from other parts of the brain and also the spinal cord. The inner ear connects to the cerebellum, so somebody could have inner ear problems with symptoms that look very much like and would be called ataxia. They could have changes in sensitivity for instance, in their feet or legs, which would decrease information going to the cerebellum and could cause problems with balance, problems with walking that could be called ataxia because of lack of that input. So the key player, as it were, in the diagnosis of ataxia is a problem with the cerebellum, either in the cerebellum itself or in other pathways that connect to the cerebellum and provide it information. There are walking and balance problems that might initially be called ataxia but turn out to be something else. Um, Changes in muscle tone or strength can alter the way a person walks. If somebody has severe tremors or twitches, it may alter balance and coordination. If... um, someone has a problem with vision and they can't see well, they may be clumsy because of a vision problem and the cerebellum could be just fine. So when somebody has been presented with a diagnosis of ataxia or they think they have ataxia, they should make absolutely sure that it's not something else, something that looks like ataxia and and would be evaluated and treated in a very different way. Got it. Wow. So there seems to be a lot of things that can be wrong to cause ataxia and a lot of things that sort of mimic. So when when a patient, you know, that usually thinks that they ataxia, what's sort of the normal course um, and what would you sort of recommend for them when they think that they do have ataxia? 
If someone thinks they have ataxia, the first thing they should do is be examined by a neurologist, either an adult neurologist if they're an adult or a child neurologist if, if they're a child, to make sure that those symptoms of imbalance and incoordination or changes in speech are coming from the cerebellum and its pathways and can be truly called ataxia. The physician would then take the person through an initial workup that would include testing to rule out common causes of problems in the cerebellum, things like brain tumor, things like stroke, multiple sclerosis are commonly known to affect the balance center and are easily ruled out by brain imaging or other testing. It's possible that those initial tests brain imaging, initial blood work to look for vitamin deficiencies or poisons or toxins may not be informative. You know, the cerebellum may look pretty good even though it isn't behaving properly. Um, vitamin levels could be fine. Um, the rest of the body's metabolism could be fine. Um, there could be no sign of, you know, poisons or toxins. And then they would go into the second round of testing which typically is going to include testing for the immune system. Um, mm -hmm. In the last 10 years, I think we've appreciated that derangements in the immune system, um, bad antibodies, as it were, can selectively attack the cerebellum and cause ataxia, and there are many causes of that, so it should be looked for because many of them are treatable. The other area is genetic. Um, if there's an obvious family history, then genetic causes of ataxia come to mind immediately. But if there's no family history, um, and there might be no family history for a number of reasons, the person could be adopted, prior family history could be hidden, it could be the type of genetic disease that shows up in one generation but may not show up in the next, it may appear to skip generations, but at its heart it's really a genetic problem. Um, or it could be a recessive genetic problem where a person would have to have two doses of the bad gene to show symptoms while carriers with only one dose would not have symptoms. So there would be no prior family history. Mm -hmm. So when we're choosing individuals in our clinic that we might want to push on into a more intense genetic workup, which might include exome sequencing, obviously mm -hmm. we look for family history. But we don't let that hold us back. You know, we, anybody who has a condition that could be genetic, um, slowly progressive, fairly symmetrical in the adult population especially, um, we would consider some at least limited type of genetic testing and obviously be quite thorough with many of the non-genetic factors. In our population of patients that, you know, at my institution, um, you know, we've seen you know, almost 3,000 individuals now over the last 10 to 15 years with various types of ataxia. 40% of them, we, you know, been able to assure us and the families it is genetic, and in the majority of them, we've actually been able to find a genetic cause. The other 60%, you know, common genetic screening was negative, looking at the immune system was not productive, you know, all the other work that, that was done by us and outside physicians was not informative. But there is still a possibility there could be a rare genetic factor, 
a genetic risk factor that sensitizes them to something in the environment that the rest of us are not sensitive to. So we've continued our clinical research um, in our adult patients for sure, looking for any genetic factor, an obvious one or a genetic risk factor that might be part of the picture. We still, however, are you know, not successful about 50% of the time in finding any cause for the ataxia, genetic or non-genetic, um, and we try to continue working with these people. Yeah, and, and um, I'm glad you sort of mentioned sort of exome sequencing because as or genome sequencing, as we sort of talked about in our first half, do you, do you, how do you see sort of the availability of whole exome and whole genome sequencing changing sort of genetic testing for ataxias? Um, I, I think as our you know, initial speakers said, it is a much cheaper way to cover a broader number of possible genetic mutations. Currently, there's a popular ataxia gene testing panel that if you ordered every test on there, which is probably not advisable because some of them are quite rare, some of them look very different, um, I certainly wouldn't recommend trying to get your insurance company to authorize $17,000 to get that entire panel. Wow. However, for less than half of that, you can have exome sequencing done that will show you many of the genes that are on that other panel and many other genes besides that you know, may not yet be known to be involved in ataxic conditions and that's where the research comes in to determine, you know, these changes in pattern in a specific gene that may come out of exome sequencing. Is it known to be associated with some interaction in the cerebellum that could cause ataxia? Has it ever been reported by anybody else in the literature? Have those reports stood up to research or have they been knocked down, which sometimes happens? You'll find a little change in a gene and get all excited and then further testing will show that it's not actually involved in causing disease at all, but that original paper is out there continuing to confuse people who, who follow the literature in this. So I think the use of exome sequencing to look for changes in genetic patterns that might signal a gene involved in causing ataxia or a risk gene that might be involved in you know, deranging the cerebellum you know, have to be interpreted by people who are experts. So at my institution, you know, we have begun to do um, CLIA-approved exome sequencing, and you know, we work with insurance companies to get it paid for, um, and we work with a committee of genetic experts at my institution who will go over all of those results before we attempt to explain any of them to the patient um, mm -hmm. to make sure that we are not giving information that you know, ultimately may be pro you know, proven false. We don't want to lead people in the wrong directions, which has certainly yeah. happened you know, through For commercial sure. testing from other companies with the available single gene tests. You know, they'll find a little change in a gene. They'll post the result as, you know, unknown significance. And then, you know, people get all excited. Oh, that's the kind of ataxia I have. And in reality, it's not. So I'm hoping exome sequencing can strengthen our ability to find ataxia genes and then figure out what they do so that we can design better treatments. Yeah, no, that's definitely. That's worth I think you hope. can appreciate that the time to a diagnosis can take months and sometimes years. Yeah, so for a normal patient, imaging, how long does it take? Yeah, I'm getting brain imaging, getting blood work. Within a month, you can get all the first-line stuff done. You can get a lot of the testing of the immune system done. So within four to six weeks, you should have 
enough information to say that it's not one of the common causes, um, one of the common non-genetic causes. The available genetic testing, if you have a strong suspicion that this person has, for instance, Friedreich's ataxia, they look like Friedreich's, um, you've seen other patients with that diagnosis, you know other people with that diagnosis, you can send a single gene test for Friedreich's and get the report back again in about a month. If, mm -hmm. however, you're going to invest in exome sequencing, um, depending on the lab you're working with, and certainly at my institution because of the additional you know, kind of quality control and genetic consultation that is involved, it can take up to three months to get that mm -hmm. report back. And if you're one of my patients that I've been you know, following, I have some patients I've been following for 30 years with very slowly progressive forms of ataxia, we still don't have a diagnosis for them. Some yeah. people we banked DNA on back before gene testing was available. Gene testing came out. We started looking at their DNA in the research lab. Ten years later, we figure out, oh, that's what you have. And so we try to maintain contact with people um, that we have seen for treatment or even for consultation so that we can continue to update them. I think one of the best ways that people can stay in the loop you know, with their own physicians, with research physicians, is to become part of an ataxia registry. Uh -huh. um, where they are registered, and there are several ataxia registries out there through the National Ataxia Foundation, through the Rare Disease Network, um, where people can put in contact information and the type of ataxia they think they have so that they can then receive information about research going on in their area. We suspect in the United States that the incidence of ataxia, genetic ataxia, is probably about 5 in 100,000 which means you know, if we look at the population, 313 million, you know, there could be oh, 15 to 16,000 people with various types of genetic ataxia and an equal number, if not more, with non-genetic ataxia. Um, I know the registries that I'm aware of you know, have at most six, 700 individuals in them. So there are a lot of people that haven't stood up to be counted have not put themselves in a registry where they can be part of the numbers that will drive further research. You know, when the funding agencies see that we have 5,000 people with all types of ataxia in registries available for clinical trials, for instance, or other research, much more likely to give money to a researcher because they know he can actually find people to do research on. So it's extremely sure. important for people to be yeah. registered. Yeah, wow. There seems a, so much going on, and definitely sort of be, be part of a registry would be important, especially if, you know, finding out about, yeah. you know, new trials and, and increasing research. We have a bunch of questions submitted by patients, specifically maybe they're struggling with taxia. And one, one of the questions are, you know, in terms of are there things that they can do to sort of prevent the progression, or are there specific diets or nutrition that you would recommend um, with someone with ataxia? Absolutely. Some things that have come out through clinical research in people with ataxia and in animal studies of animals with ataxia is that exercise absolutely can help improve symptoms of ataxia and even stabilize people for longer periods of time, you know, potentially slowing up progression or enabling them to keep up with an underlying progression. The types of exercise that have been found to be helpful 
um, rhythmic repetitive exercise that gets a rhythm going so it feeds back information to the cerebellum. It's kind of like practicing the piano. The more you practice, the better you get. So practicing walking, practicing rhythmic and repetitive exercise on a daily basis will improve performance. Strengthening core muscles will improve balance. If somebody has tightness in joints or tightness in muscles because they can't use them well, stretching will improve mobility, which will then itself improve balance and coordination. So we usually recommend that everybody work with a physical therapist to develop a daily exercise program that includes something rhythmic and repetitive. You know, cardio, for instance, often meets that. Something that works on the core muscles and then stretching if appropriate. There are symptomatic medications that can stimulate nerves in the cerebellum to work better. Um, and if you typed into a medical search engine, ataxia and treatment, you would find hundreds of articles about various available medications that have been used to treat the symptoms of ataxia. Um, amantadine, which is an anti-flu agent. Buspirone, which is an anti-anxiety agent. There was recently a publication about varenicline or Shantix, which is a stop-smoking agent, and another pop, you know, publication about Raluzol, which was approved for use for people with Lou Gehrig's disease, but in a European study appeared to help people with symptoms of imbalance and incoordination. And these are just the first four of many that seem to have some benefit for symptoms. None of them are disease-modifying. If you have a progressive form of ataxia, they won't stop the progression. They won't cure the ataxia. But they mm -hmm. seem to be able to get the cerebellum to work better despite of the limitations that it has. Um, vitamins, nutritional supplements, uh, there's even more of those out there. There's been a lot of research focus on the role of antioxidant vitamins and antioxidant supplements in treating a variety of degenerative brain diseases, including ataxia. Um, including aging, for that matter. So if an individual wanted to pick one or two um, reasonably well-defined and safe antioxidants and try them for six months to see how they feel, to see how they do, very appropriate. Um, so, you know, but they should be wary shoppers. You know, they don't want to invest a lot of money in, you know, an interesting brand that has a lot of um, testimonials behind it suggesting it can cure a taxi because most likely it will not do that. But sticking with the straightforward simple ones, um, coenzyme Q10, um, resveratrol, um, vitamin E, there are a number of antioxidants that have been in clinical trials for a variety of brain and medical diseases which do seem to have an impact and are worth a trial. Hmm, that's very interesting. And can you talk a little bit about clinical trials for ataxia? One, one of our, our listeners sort of wrote in, I was wondering why there are not more clinical trials and, and supposedly had had difficulty getting into clinical trials. And I think this individual had a sort of a, an identified ataxia. Can you comment a little bit about current clinical trials that are existing for clinical ataxia? Clinical trials. Um, there, there are two types of clinical trials, you know, two types of drugs that, that could be studied. One would be drugs for symptoms, um, and there's currently a study um, going on uh, in Florida with a drug that may have symptomatic benefits for ataxia, may or may not modify the course of the disease. So as 
ideas come up for available drugs or new drugs that may improve the symptoms of ataxia, the individual, the physician researcher who wants to sponsor that trial has to get funding. If it's an available drug, he may not be able to get funding from the drug company, which has no interest in pouring money into a new use for an old drug if they aren't going to make a lot of money back from it. If it's a research drug that has not yet been tried but seems to have the potential to help symptoms, um, then, again, they would have to get funding. They would have to convince the FDA that it's safe and effective to use. And for any new drug, whether it's a symptomatic drug or a disease-modifying drug, um, you know, if it's a brand-new drug, you know, the first light bulb goes off in somebody's mind, it can be 15 years and millions of dollars to bring that drug to the point where you can say this drug seems to be helpful or this drug does not seem to be helpful. Certainly for gene therapies, depends on having a very specific form of ataxia with a genetic factor that has been identified, and then that very, very rare group of drugs under development that can actually modify the genetic changes that are going on. And there are indeed many drugs of that type in the pipeline, but very few have reached the point in animal studies and safety studies to where the FDA is willing to let them move forward into human trials. So the pipeline, good ideas are there. The pipeline is slow. The pipeline is very expensive. So the number of trials that actually make it through for people to participate in very small. And once the trial is posted, there are going to be restrictions. They may want to study the drug only in people with a certain type of ataxia or people in a certain age group or people with a certain level of disability, recognizing that if they want that study to have statistically significant results, they have to control as many variables as possible. If it's more likely that younger people will respond and older, older people not, then they'll restrict the study to younger people to try to assure that they can get the best data with the best statistics that will make the best case to the FDA to approve that drug. Maybe after the drug is released, it will be used by everybody. But to actually get into a clinical trial, you know, you have to get the clinical trial up and running, and then you have to meet those criteria that the people sponsoring the clinical trial think is going to give them the best data. So it is frustrating, um, and it does seem to go very slowly. And we have a dozen new drugs for arthritis, but, you know, to get even one drug into clinical trials for ataxia in a year is, is a huge achievement. And, you know, we have a lot of devoted clinician researchers and basic scientists that are out there trying to, to get this done. Um, much better shape than we were in 10 years ago. What does gene therapy look like for ataxia? Is that something that, that is something in the near future for patients, or is it still sort of more sort of theory versus practice? You know, it's, it's interesting. In some disorders with known, a known gene and a known mutation, for instance, Friedreich's ataxia, ataxia it's one gene has very specific type of mutation in 97% in of people who have it. And there have been drugs developed that can make that gene behave like a normal gene. Um, several different classes of drugs that are under development. Um, one has actually gone into a phase one human trial, not in the United States, but outside the U.S. So, you know, after, you know, 10 to 15 years of intensive research, the first, as it were, gene therapy for Friedreich's ataxia is 
is entering human trials. For some of the other ataxias, let's say the dominantly inherited ataxias, um, which are numbered, ataxia type 1, ataxia type 2, ataxia type 3, again, there are one or two classes of drugs that seem to be able to modify the bad effects of that gene mutation and prevent the bad gene from causing damage. Um, one of them is entering a phase 1 study. Um, one is just on the threshold of the FDA, hopefully giving it the go-ahead to go into human trials. So I think, you know, it's been only 15 years um, since the first genes for ataxia were really nailed down. So we're, I guess we're at that point, the 15-year mark, where some of these very carefully developed um, gene therapies, as it were, are finally getting into the, the, the human trials. Um, and there will be more. Um, yeah, but the, the key thing is safety. You know, you, you start manipulating the human genome, and you know a lot of things could change. Yeah. Um, a drug you think is targeting your gene of choice might be accidentally targeting other genes that you don't want to to manipulate. Yeah, definitely an exciting time, and hopefully, as sort of these therapies develop, um, we'll be able to help more people. We have some questions that. Um, listeners have submitted live. Um, one of them specifically is talking about their, a caretaker of someone with ataxia. Um, do you have any sort of advice for caregivers and you know, how to them, for them to be best supportive of, of people that they're caring for? The caregiver, whether it's a caregiver, a significant other, a family member, has to recognize that from the medical point of view, safety is our number one concern, that we would want to, with the ataxia patient's permission, be able to include the caregiver in medical discussions about proper treatment, proper exercise, are there any drugs or vitamins that might be helpful, and also safety in the home. Ataxia in general does not kill people. But falls, you know, and injuries will. You know, immobility, not getting up and moving around, can predispose to infection. Infection can cause sepsis, which can kill a person. Not taking care with eating, um, eating too fast, eating the wrong kinds of foods, swallowing down the wrong pipe, choking, can be a life-threatening emergency. So our number one concern in improving the length of life of anybody with ataxia is preventing falls, preventing choking, maintaining good general health, um, and maintaining mobility at whatever level the person can do. It is extremely important to maintain independence. I think for anybody, any of our mental health, you know, we want to think we're independent. We want to think that we have some say in what we're doing. And I think a caregiver needs to respect that. Um, and I think the caregiver, certainly if the person with ataxia has severe disability and the caregiver is providing a large amount of that individual's care, the caregiver, him or herself, has to have time out. They need time to themselves. They need respite. Um, they need to protect their own health and, and mental health when they're you know, taking on this such an important role in, in being a caregiver for someone. Mm -hmm. It's important to never give up for the caregiver or the patient. They need to continue mm -hmm. to seek information. What's new? What's going on? Um, you know, they can run around the country trying to see experts, or they can network with other people with ataxia. And I think 
you know, certainly my patients with ataxia have learned enormous amounts from each other, and I've learned an enormous amount from my patients. Great. So if there's patients who want to learn more about sort of ataxia, besides sort of getting support from, you know, the forum at Ben's Friends, um, are there resources that you would recommend them to look up online to learn more about ataxia? Two very good sources. One is the National Ataxia Foundation, and their website is www.ataxia.org. They have a variety of educational materials. They have postings about current research. They will, you know, answer questions. They will, I find, experts to answer questions if it's a question that, that they can't deal with. Um, I think for anybody with any form of ataxia, they're a wonderful initial resource. And the website has links to other websites as well. For people with Friedreich's ataxia, um, there is another website that is www.curefa.org, which has more specific information about current research, current clinical trials, what's known about ataxia, and links to other sites specific for the person with Friedreich's ataxia. And both of those websites have links to registries, the registry for Friedreich's ataxia, the registry for general ataxia, so that people can kind of do one-stop shopping at either one of those websites. Great. Thank you so much. Um, and our hour is up, but um, Dr. Perlman has actually agreed um, to stay a little bit longer, which we'll sort of add in our, our bonus section um, as, as extra from the podcast. But So as part of this podcast, we would like to sort of formally thank you for your time, Dr. Perlman. Thank um, you for inviting me. And I think you can see that, you know, I take any opportunity I can to educate people, to help them find resources. Um, patients of mine in clinic, I've heard this lecture many times. So, you know, I think it's important for everybody to get this information and then to be advocates to share it with other people. Well, thank you. We, we definitely appreciate it and sort of have known of, of your many efforts in, in this community, and a lot of the patients really appreciate that as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that concludes our hour. Um, some people have sort of um, remarked online asking about what are the other topics. We're actually working with Ben's Friends to go through on the different disease communities, um, and Ben's Friends will be um, holding surveys to sort of assess interests of the dis different diseases. And in the future, we'll be covering other future technologies in the first half and other diseases um, in the second half. And our goal is to really provide a resource to help patients learn what's the most cutting edge um, in, develop, in, in terms of research for rare disease, as well as um, learn about one specific disease. Well, thank you. Thanks, for everybody, for tuning in. And you can stay on for the extra sections. Thank you very much. Thank you.